Good morning. It is it's good to be back with you. I, it's been a couple of years, I think. I think you were in the old, you are in the, the school when last I was here, so congratulations on the new digs. Um, I, it, it, I, my family worships at uh, Frontline Community Church, up north, a sister church of yours, so that's, uh, and I, I thank you for, you're making me feel at home even as I come in here. I see you have a, a post running down the middle of your auditorium. We have like four of those at Frontline, and inevitably, when we get into the row with me and my wife and four children, I always end up behind the pole. So I spend most of my time doing this through the service, so thank you for it's just... And it's the little things, right, that make you feel at home. I, I appreciate that. It, it is. No, I, uh, I am. I function. I, I was a, a pastor for many years. I was a, a teacher at a university, uh, a seminary for about 15 years, uh, before I found our way to the front line. Through a story, I'll tell you in a, kind of in a second. But uh, I've come to, I think, function in the zero collective. These churches as a kind of utility infielder. Right, you know, so like when someone gets injured or gets lost in Guatemala or something, you know, that sort of thing, um, they they call me to do. So I am delighted to be back with you today because obviously, like John said, he didn't know if he was going to make it back. It may be in time, right? Maybe the other two. I don't know. You never know. So thank you for being here, uh, for for being here and letting me be here as well. Um, I'm actually glad to just be anywhere, frankly, because in October I went through my second bout of COVID. Don't worry, I'm, I've tested clean. I'm, I'm not disease-bearing now. It's all good. But, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't a, the worst experience. I mean, you hear the horror stories of what the thing can do to you. But for me, it was just it laid me up for a week in bed, and the symptoms were persistent more than they were horrible. But during that some time, someone asked me, like, so, you know, how you doing, you know, with the, with the COVID thing? And I, I heard myself, so I didn't even think about it. Just sort of what fell out of my mouth was, oh, man, I, w- I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Which you've, you've probably heard that phrase before. I mean, you may have even said it before. I've said it before. I wouldn't wish it on my worst, my worst uh, enemy. And uh, I, I, when we say it, I don't think we actually mean it or whatever, because it's not something we can actually do, right? It's an easy thing to say. I couldn't wish COVID on my you know, <coughs> I can't like wish it on my worst enemy. It's an easy thing to say. But in that moment, as it came out this time, God sort of did the on the back of the head for me, and, you know, and the eyes went like that, and. Uh, and the voice kind of said, like, well, would you? It's cheap and easy to say, but what if you had the, if you had the opportunity? Would you? Would you wish it on your worst enemy? Now, I, I tell you this because, I mean, I don't know what your life is like or where you come from, but I, I actually have people in my life um, who I could very well consider enemies. I don't mean like, you know, like the Taliban kind of enemy, but, you know, people who work against you, people who seek your downfall or would relish in it, you know, good Schadenfreude, that sort of thing. Yeah, that, was, that was my heavy word for the day, Schadenfreude, to rejoice in the downfall of your enemies, right? <clears throat> but I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not like sort of whining about injustices done to me or anything like that. And when I speak of my enemies, you, you have to understand, in my story, they have cause. I've, I've done things in my life that deserve enemies, for which people have legitimate cause. I I told you I was a pastor and a college professor for a number of years, so after many years of doing that work, 10 years ago, I blew it all up and threw it away. This is me in life 2.0. I'm not a pastor now. I'm a a congregant like you. Not that that's, you know, that's that's my life. I've I've transitioned. 
and over the last 10 years, we've put life back together. But the truth is, uh, you know, I wrecked a lot of people's lives. And I'm not here to tell my story because there's lots of other things we need to do. But you have to have a sense of where I'm coming from to talk about what it is I have to talk about today. If you'd like to know more about my story, because you have a right to sort of, you know, understand who's sitting here, I will refer you to the, the website of my book that's coming out. This isn't a commercial for the book. I mean, you can't even buy it yet. It doesn't come out till January. Um, and you can find it on Amazon, whatever. But it's really the website. If you want to know more of my story, and John kind of mentioned it as well, you can go you can go there and read that. That's kind of all I'm going to say about kind of the details of it, other than the book itself, my editor and I, we sort of put it together for, for people, because there's not a lot out there for people whose greatest wounds in life are self-inflicted. Like you did it to yourself. How do you put life back together after you've kind of blown it up for people whose greatest regrets in life um, are self-imposed? So that's what the book is trying to do, drawing from my own story of trying to put life back together. So when I, when I speak of my enemies, you have to understand what I mean is I made a great and terrible wreck of things for a whole lot of people, you know, in that church, in my life, people. But, but here's the point. People then, of course, have to respond to it because when you make a mistake, when you make a choice that's bad for you or other people, other people then get to make choices too, right? They get to respond. And there's no telling how they're going to respond. You get to pick your choices, you don't get to pick your consequences. That's how life works, right? So in the process of that whole thing playing out, there was a lot of choices made by other people that, that really made a lot of thing, things harder on me, my family, and things like that. So to put it plainly, the lesson I had to learn as I moved through it was something like, I who have much for which I need to be forgiven also had to learn how to forgive. Because the lines between perpetrator and victim often get fuzzy by the time all the shots are exchanged by the end of the war. So this is what I'm here to talk about today. I don't know how to call such people. We're going to use the word enemies because it's the way the text talks about what we're going to talk about. But as I said, I wouldn't wish it on my first enemy. God was now asking me to think about, well, what if you really could? How thoroughly have you forgiven what does the gospel say to and about those people that we would be forced to classify as our enemies? People who actively work against our interests and intend our destruction, who rejoice in our suffering. And I don't want us to be abstract this morning. I'd like you to think about here at the very beginning, who is it in your life that actively works against your well-being? Who's your enemy? Is it that, you know, that family member, you know, who makes your life just a perennial hell every time you meet at that family reunions that you just hate to go to because, you know, uncle so-and-so is going to be there? Is the person you have the long-standing grudge against since childhood or college the thing you can't get past because of what they did? The person responsible for, I don't know, your layoff, your financial distress, your emotional or possibly physical wounds? The person on the other end of that social media rant whose greatest sin is that they will not be persuaded by your coherent and perfect arguments. On occasion, sadly, it can even be spouses, parents, children, friends, roommates. Who is it? Who rejoices in your struggles, or at least is partly the cause of them? I'd like you to identify that person this morning. I want their face to swim before your mind as we hear the words of Jesus. I don't want this to be an abstract conversation. There is nothing abstract about enemies. They are the most concrete thing we have. 
So we're going to go straight to the horse's mouth this morning. We're going to hear the words of Jesus. It's from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, this is these Matthew 5, 6, 7. It's the longest preserved sermon we have of Jesus, so kind of all continuous sermon. That is, of course, unless Matthew's not stitching together a bunch of things to, to form this sermon. We just don't know these things. But, of course, it's the, the, Jesus' is teaching here, and you'll recognize all the various parts of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard many of them before. He starts in chapter 5 with what we call the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about blessed are the, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when people persecute you. Blessed are, you know, things that when they happen to us, we wouldn't actually think of ourselves as blessed. Right? So Jesus, even the beginning of the sermon, Jesus begins to subvert our expectations, begins to turn them inside out and tell us things we don't expect from angles we didn't anticipate. And from there, he, throughout the chapter 5, now he, he begins to, he, he, uh, he offers six different like units of teaching, each that begin with the, the same formula. You have heard it said, but I now say to you. He's going to do that like six times through the rest of chapter 5. And he's going to, he deals with all the hot-button issues, right? He's going to, throughout these six little sections, he's going to deal with divorce. He's going to deal with adultery. He's going to deal with lust and murder and vengeance, all the fun stuff. Well, our passage today comes from the sixth and final one of these. And in each of them, Jesus seems to be trying to correct some misunderstanding. You know, you've heard it said, this, but I say to you, as if Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of God doesn't work the way you have been told it does. This is what it's really like. So now as we come to this final, the sixth of these, at the end of the chapter, it's one, it's a section of teaching about our enemies. What does the good news of Jesus Christ have to say to people like you and me, people who have enemies? And I, I want to warn you up front, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard word this morning. Well, Jesus begins in verse 43 with, the, with the, the statement, as I told you it was coming, you have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, pause there for a minute. We don't know exactly who Jesus is talking about. Who is it that they have heard it said by? We, it's just not preserved for us. Is Jesus talking about some actual teacher that was floating around that people would have known? Oh, yeah, yeah, Rabbi so-and-so says this. We, we just don't know. The Old Testament doesn't seem to say anything like this directly. You're not going to find that statement in the Old Testament. Nor is it so brazenly written anywhere in the extra-biblical Jewish commentaries of the day that we know of. It's just not there. When you look through the Old Testament, you do find lots of things about loving our brothers, loving those who are connected to you, the fellow Jews, right, you know, in the land, of loving that and how to treat them, as well as you do find a lot of things talking about how to do justice to those who aren't in your little circle, the, you know, the alien or stranger in the land, what justice looks like towards the poor or towards women or towards slaves. Or to, I mean, you find all of that. But on the flip side of the coin, you do find, you know, in the Psalms and in the, in the prophets, you find a lot of angry people shouting as well. You, know, you find the psalmist pouring out rage and anger against Israel's enemies. You know, Lord, bless those who will dash their children against stones. So you get this kind of honest upwelling of emotion in the Old Testament too that you've probably felt in your own life when you are mistreated or something unfair happens to you. So it's very honest, but it's not exactly what Jesus says. You have heard it said. So we don't know exactly where Jesus is talking about, whether he's talking about some individual teacher, but more likely, most likely, what Jesus is doing here is simply expressing the sort of default condition of the human heart. He's expressing what we all tend to feel. As if to say, I know your heart tells you you're supposed to love those who are nice to you and hate those who are not, but... 
And this makes a kind of sense for us, because it does seem to be the default setting of my heart, perhaps yours, that of most people, to sort of love those who are within your own camp who are on your side and sort of, you know, be suspicious of those who are out, or as my kids like to say, pretty sus about people on the outside of your little community. It's just as true today as it was then. You see it played out all the time in social media and politics. It's, you know, it's election season. God help us all. Don't worry, it'll be over in a couple of weeks. You can, you know, you've actually, it's this week, isn't it? Oh, man, thank God. Because you know what political discourse looks like in, in, our, in our world these days. Like, it's, if you're a Republican like I am, or you're a Democrat like I am, or whatever you, your stripe is, then so long as you're on my side, as long as you're in my little community, it doesn't matter what kind of wretched human being you are otherwise, hey, you're on my side, and I embrace you. Conversely, you may be a wonderful human being, compassionate and caring like that, but if you don't agree with me on the red or the blue on Proposal X, you're on the outside, and I vilify and talk badly about you, true or false. That's what it kind of looks like. So Jesus this morning may not be speaking against a particular teacher or teaching. He may just be talking against all of us. He may be speaking against what we tend to do, speaking to us here today. And so I'm going to take the passage a little out of order. Before I tell you what Jesus does say we should do, I want you to understand why Jesus is so sort of apathetic or why he's so underwhelmed by the traditional logic, love those who love you and hate those who don't, because he is. He's very unimpressed with the that-you-have-heard thing. But of course, I want to know what's wrong with simply loving those who love you and hating those who don't. That seems infinitely reasonable and infinitely safe. Well, here's what Jesus actually says in verse 46. He says, well, if you take that approach, if you love those who love you, what reward are you going to get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, remember the tax collectors. These are the the, the national traders. They work with Rome. They've aligned themselves with Rome to collect taxes from their fellow Jewish citizens to kind of extort the money from them. So these these are people, traders to the country. Jesus is saying even the worst people among us do that. If you, if you embrace, if you greet, literally, only, only your own people, the people you're comfortable with, well, what are you doing more than others? Even the, the Gentiles, the pagans, do that sort of thing. So what Jesus is saying is that the traditional logic on this, the default setting of your heart, doesn't require really anything from you. It costs you nothing to repay kindness for kindness. Everybody does that. To treat justly those inside your little tribe, well, there's no special praise to, be, to do there. Everybody does that. It's like, it's like giving special praise to a mother who cares for her own children. Well, that's what you expect. That's just the minimum bar of motherhood, right? It's like a lieutenant who, who cares well for the soldiers under his command. Well, of course he does. That's his job. Like a, like a fellow citizen standing up with other fellow citizens to protest or something. Well, of course, that kind of fraternity is meant to, to be expected from people from this, with this in the same nationality. And, I, and, I, and honestly, I don't want to speak against that in absolute terms. It is love of country, love of family, love of your tribe is one of the lesser goods in the world. It is, in principle, a good thing. I mean, it's certainly better than showing contempt and cynicism for everybody, even your own children and your own fellow citizens and your own country and your own whatever. Sure, it's better than that. But Jesus did not come merely to reinforce our congenital prejudices for people in our own little set or people who share our political opinions or our, our skin pigmentation or our, our socioeconomic class. That's easy. We didn't need the Son of God to stoop down and enter the world to tell us God's opinion on that stuff. 
Every sage and wiseacre in the history of the world has told us that. Love those who love you and hate those who don't. Be nice to those who are nice to you. You might as well say that it's somehow virtuous that you eat foods that you like. Of course you do. I only listen to my favorite music. Of course you do. There is nothing impressive about that. So Jesus is very unimpressed by that kind of thing. Jesus, frankly, wants more from us. Jesus wants more for us. So he advocates for something different. What does he advocate for? Well, not the common sense position of all humanity in all times and all places. Jesus advocates for the kingdom of God. In fact, if you were to just keep reading right into chapter 6 as the sermon continues, you would recognize it because the very next pieces is Jesus te teaching his disciples to pray. And you remember how that goes. Our Father in heaven, your name be hallowed, your will be done, your kingdom come where? Right here, right here on earth, before us, just as it is already done before you in heaven. Jesus is about to tell us what it means for God's name to be hallowed, God's will to be done, and God's kingdom to, be co to come, not, not in relation to people that we like, but in relation to people that we don't. So Jesus tells us the scandalous thing that we need to hear in verse 44. You have heard it said... But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> Why, Jesus? Why would you say that? Don't you understand, Jesus? My wounds are real. My wounds are deep. My grievances are legitimate. My enemies are ever-present, rejoicing in my troubles. They are, by definition, unlovable. That's why they're my enemies. That's the meaning of the word. And you can almost hear Jesus say back, I know. Believe me, I know. There's just no living with one's enemies. My enemies hung me on a cross. Yeah, Jesus knows that of which he speaks. These are not cheap and easy words that fall from his lips. He had enemies, real enemies, and he loved them to the point of death. Now, since he's already told us that he came to talk about his father, his father's name, his father's will, his father's kingdom, more, he came to show us what the father is like by acting out the values of his father in the world. In short, it was supposed to work something like this. You want to know what God in heaven is like? You want to know what's important to God, what matters? Well, then look at Jesus. Look at his life, look at his actions, look at his teaching, look at his conduct. That will show you what the father's like. It will show you the paternity. It will show you the lineage between this father and the son that they do, they come from the same like source. Hey, this is, you can find this anywhere, right? Children, if you spend enough time with them, will tell you something about the parents. For better or worse. Right? That's why you don't tell secrets to your children because they're going to go to their third grade classroom and out you in front of their teacher. That's how children work. They tell you things about their parents eventually. My, my, my youngest, I have four, my oldest 18 and it's kind of left the house. Um, but, you know, the 10-year-old, the, the fourth one, just finished his soccer season, in his, his fourth grade soccer season. And uh, if you've ever watched little kids soccer, it's, it's a riot because they don't have positions. 
They just sort of like, you know, wherever the ball is, that sort of thing. Well, in one of these games that I was watching, the coach, you know, and how they substitute, they substitute half the team at a shot, right? So here's all the six kids sitting on the sidelines. They all go in and the six kids come out because everybody's you know, got to play, which I'm grateful for because my son has my level of athletic skill. And, uh, but at this one time, the coach sent them all out on the field but forgot to tell Asher where, you know, where his position is. I don't know why that matters. You know, but he didn't. And Asher, being the scientific, you know, engineering-minded child that he is, stood on the sidelines saying, Coach, where am I going? Where am I going? Where am I going? Where am I going? And the coach, of course, is busy doing other stuff. Ten, ten seconds later, it has degenerated into my son, with hands behind his back, literally screaming, Where am I going? With the coach looking now at him like, ooh, you know, out, demon child. It, it, and, of course, I'm on the other side of the field sitting in my launcher going, Not my kid. Not my kid, not my kid. When sadly, exactly my kid. He comes by it honestly. Nobody throws a fit better than I do. Just ask my wife. Children will tell you about their parents eventually. I mean, it just it comes out, their behavior, their words, and things like that. But that's exactly the analogy Jesus trades on here. Why should we love our enemies? Well, he tells us, verse 45. Because by doing so, you may be children of your Father in heaven. In doing so, in loving our enemies, we reveal both what our heavenly parent is like and that we really are his children. We do as God does. Remember, that's why they were originally called Christians in Antioch, right? Little Christs. Why? Because they had the flavor, the texture, the smell of Jesus, who had the flavor, the texture, the smell of his Father. It's constantly pointing, constantly pointing. That's why we love our enemies, because apparently the Heavenly Father loved His enemies. Now that, that begs the question, obviously, well, how does God love the divine enemies? What, how does the Heavenly Father love enemies? Well, Jesus tells us this as well. Verse 45, He, of course, He meaning here God, the Father, He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Now don't, don't misread this. We have a tendency to because we tend to read this as like, you know, sun good, rain bad, all things come from God's hand. And you can find that in the Bible. Job says something like that. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He is not giving, you know, this is not a, you know, James Taylor album. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Right? This, rain here is not a negative image. We think of rain as a negative image because, you know, it soaks our clothes, it cancels baseball games, it keeps the children inside, all that kind of stuff. But for an agrarian society, if you're trying to grow food to survive... Can you think of two more important things for growing crops to survive than sunshine and rain? We understand that both of these images here for Jesus are blessings. They're good things. The Father gives sunshine and rain. Upon whom? Well, the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. Code for everybody, all the time, everywhere. God is pouring out these undeserved blessings. Life-giving gifts, undeserved graces, gifts of God upon all people, what our Reformed brothers and sisters like to call common grace, the grace of God pouring just gifts out on people everywhere, even God's own enemies. And the truth is no less scandalous than this, that in the very face of people's hatred and rejection, how does the Heavenly Father respond? Sunshine and rain. The Father loves His enemies. And He does so by meeting their needs and causing them to flourish. 
This is the good news of the gospel for our enemies. Though you may hate and despise your maker, yet the sun's going to rise and the rain's going to fall. And now Jesus reminds us, you are God's children. Do as God does. Wait, 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 says my heart. Are you really saying, Jesus, that I am supposed to seek my enemy's good, promote his flourishing, and seek justice even for those who hate me, misuse me, and seek my downfall? Yes, it appears that that is what he is saying. Surely you feel the impossibility of it as well as I do. Surely your soul, like mine, rears up on its hind legs at such a demand, crying out like Cain himself. That's beyond what I can bear. Don't ask this of me, Jesus. Anything but this. You cannot ask me to love the person who did that to me. It's unreasonable. It's impossible. Can't be done. And if you've spent any time with God in your life, you know how God responds. God, the Heavenly Father, just patiently outweights my little tantrum. Graciously, kindly, waits for me to collect myself, for the tears to stop, to put myself back together. Waits for the Spirit of God to do its gentle work, slowly and inexorably. And I find myself shepherded back into that place that Christ himself occupied on the night before his great mistreatment. Not my will, but yours. Okay, God, you win again. Except, Father, I, I don't know how. I don't know how to love that person. I don't, I don't have it in me. But at this, the Father nods and smiles and whispers, Yeah, I know. I know you don't. But this is how it begins. This is first base. This is the start. I know you don't know how to do it, but what I want from you is a willingness and a determination to obey even when you don't know how. That choice to obey even when you don't know how is the first step. So how you ask me, do you love enemies? How do you, what's the, what are the practical steps? Again, I want this to be practical, I got to tell you, I don't know. In a sense, I don't know in the sense that I can't speak for you because your wounds are going to be unique. The relationships you have are going to be your own. There is not a one-size-fits answer, so, you know, talk to your therapist about it, I guess. Talk to your spiritual director. But... Jesus has not left us without a good, solid push in the right direction here. So I will draw your attention to a couple of things. First of all, God's love for the divine enemies that Jesus speaks of here is, is, is not a feeling. It's not, it's not discussed as a feeling, or worse, even a false feeling, as if to look at your enemy and to lie to yourself, pretending that they are really not wicked or malicious. You'll notice Jesus still calls them what they are. He says the rain falls upon the good and the evil. I mean, there's, there's no confusion of the categories here. Jesus calls them what they are. They are the unrighteous. They are the evil. That the, Whatever Jesus is talking about doesn't involve simply ignoring all of their abominable behavior, which I say, thank God, because that doesn't seem right at all to me. Jesus is not asking us here to like our enemies. 
He is not telling us to have any particular feeling at all about them. That is not what he's talking about. He is not, if you will, saying, I want you to fall in love with your enemies in experience. No, I just love them the way the Father does. And the divine love does not appear to be a feeling so much as an action. How does Jesus express it? Sunshine. Rain. Their actions. Perhaps this is why Jesus did not just say the first part, love your enemies. He also added the second part. You see it again. Not only love your enemies, but what? Pray for those who persecute you. The practical point. To pray for the welfare of one's enemies does not require you to feel anything particular about them at all. Because it's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's something you can do even when your feelings are in full revolt. I mean, you know what this prayer sounds like already. You've maybe had to pray it in your lifetime. I have. Lord, I don't want to say what I'm about to say. I don't want to have to say it. But I'm your child, and I want to act like it. So, bless them, Father. Preserve their lives and their livelihood. Protect their families and their health. Jesus seems to understand and tell us that this is apparently how we start to love the unlovable. We make the choice to pray for their welfare. Now, I know that people don't think much of prayer. It seems a very, you know, flimsy and insufficient response. Every time there's a tragedy somewhere in the world, all over Facebook, people are sending their what? Their thoughts and their prayers. And of course, there's always some wiseacre on the other end posting, stop giving your thoughts and prayers, that's useless, send money, send clothes. Send... And honestly, I have some sympathy with that. If all you do is sit around, you know, sending prayers and feelings like that, and we never get off our duff and actually go to Guatemala to help, yeah, you're right, there's a deficiency there for sure. But I confess I don't exactly know how prayer works. I'll acknowledge this. I don't know how God takes the prayer I pray today and coordinates the events of tomorrow. I, I, it's mystery Something God does, but I don't understand. So yeah, I don't know all of that. But I do know this. I do know something. There is at least one change that happens every time I pray. And it's a change in me. I don't know what prayer changes out there. That's God's business. But I know that prayer changes me. It changes me, the one saying it. Apparently, this is how we start to love the unlovely. Prayer for them, for our enemies, may not change them, but I know it changes me. And it's a lesson we already know from from other relationships in life, if we think about it. You know, you love your spouse, you love your children, you love your parents, you love your friends, but in truth, we don't always like them. They do things we don't like. Feelings come and go, they ebb and flow, they go up and down. But it's exactly in those moments where our kids have rubbed us all out of shape with some act of relational terrorism... It's exactly in that moment, do we not, that we have to say to ourselves, well, somebody here has got to be the adult. And so we rise up and try to do the right thing and respond to our children in ways that preserve their dignity, ways of respect. In short, we try to respond with sunshine and rain in the face of our children's idiocy. And if by grace God works in them, they probably have to do the same for us. Though I do not feel loving towards you right now because you are hardly lovable in this moment, yet I will still treat you with dignity and respect. And apparently, Jesus tells us, it's that choice 
that establishes or itself becomes an expression of love. You can take it as a maxim to build your life on. A love that can only do good to a person when the feelings cooperate is not love. That's just personal advantage. Love. Whoa, love. Does good to the beloved even when the feelings are not there. And so we make the decision with Jesus to pray for our enemies, believing that God is strong and powerful and can take that meager obedience that we offer and turn it into something greater with time. For love, so expressed in actions, does indeed have the power to transform not only us, but them. Now, I'm not making you any false promises this morning. I cannot promise you that your enemy will hereby become your friend. I know that doesn't happen that way. Some wounds are too deep. Some history is too long. But I do know that it does happen sometimes. I know it because I have seen it happen in at least one case. Mine. See, what Jesus says here about the Father loving his enemies is not something that just refers to people out there. As if, you know, we're all on the inside with God. We cannot forget the truth that this was true about all of us. We were all enemies of God. That was our starting place. And through God's persistent love of me, God's enemy, I was recalled to life. And so were you. Surely you say it's too much to ask of God. It's impossible that God should make friends out of enemies. Yeah, it is, but it happened. As Paul says to the, the church in Rome, it is your kindness, O oh God, that leads us to repentance. So this is the way of the kingdom. This is what it looks like. To love my enemies as God loved me when I was God's enemy. And with the same end with the same purpose, that they might be restored, that they might be given life, that they might be reclaimed for the kingdom. Impossible, you say. Yes, just as impossible as God turning rebels into adopted sons and daughters. But I acknowledge it's difficult. It is a difficult word, and it's hard to see how it works. So I'd like to, as we kind of wrap it up here at the end, Jesus' words, I'd, I'd like to put a, just a slightly different angle on it. This is, a, if you will, you could think of this as, uh, this is the Julie Andrews moment where I'm going to add a little bit of sugar to make the medicine go down. Okay. I want you to take courage, because when you chase this all the way to the end and you spend time thinking about it, running it through the rest of the words of Jesus all through and things like that, what you begin to realize in the end is ultimately, in the final sense, this really isn't something Jesus is asking us to do. Because Jesus knows we're not strong enough, noble enough, we're not good enough. Jesus is not asking you to sort of gin up enough strength on your own to love the unlovable. Like, you know, if you just keep eating rancid meat, you'll learn to like it. That's not it at all. It seems like what he is actually recognizing, the father who loves his enemies well, and we're supposed to be like him, what that seems to boil down into is something like Jesus is asking you to be open. As you pray for your enemies, you are asking God, in essence, to be open to what God wishes to do in and through you. And in fact, the principle seems to be something like this. Jesus is asking us to let God love your enemies through you. Because God is very good at loving his enemies. And that's a work God wants to do 
through you. It's not a work God is asking you to just sort of do on main strength. I hope that helps a little bit. Because Jesus is not asking us that we need to start feeling feelings that we don't feel. Jesus is not telling us that we need to start calling evil good. Jesus is not telling us to ignore the wounds we've been given as if, well, your pain just doesn't matter. What he's telling us to do is to make the choice by our prayers to open ourselves up to the work of God so that God can do this work in and through us. When you feel like, as I often do, that you cannot love your enemies, you don't have it in you, that's okay. Because God can do that work through me. The Spirit of God is strong to help me do things I am unable to do in my own strength. I'd like you to return now to that person I asked you to think about at the beginning. That person from your, your past, whoever it is, your family member, co-worker, old fling. Do you know what you're being asked to do? I mean this week, specifically. It's your first step. And honestly, it's the only thing I'm asking you to do this week. It's the only thing Jesus is asking you to do this week. Just make the choice to start praying for them. Pray for their welfare, for their flourishing. Pray for their repentance. Pray for their restoration to God. Jesus is asking you simply be open to God doing something through those prayers that you can't anticipate or expect. What is it that God wants to do? I don't know. Let God figure it out. Not your problem. Just be like your Heavenly Father. Because remember, in the end, your Father made sons and daughters out of the very people who murdered His Son. That's the bar. That is the bar following Christ. That is the bar against which our efforts are judged. So in the end, the final words of Jesus on the matter are this. So be perfect. Be perfect. Seek perfection just as your Father in heaven is already perfect. Be like your Father. Love those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Show yourself to be a children, a child 